Some of you will remember that this past summer, the news all around the world had to do with a website company called Ashley Madison. This particular website was hacked. Its 32 million subscribers were exposed. Some of them were Hollywood people. Some of them were politicians. Sadly, some of them were even clergymen. Ashley Madison website has as its theme, and I quote, Life is short. Have an affair. Jesus would say life is eternal. Live the God life and make a commitment to your marriage. Have a lifelong marriage instead of an affair. This morning I want us to look at this text in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 32. We've spent the last four weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about the thrill of living the God life. We've talked about the impact that God's people, Christian people who are living the God life can make in our world. And we've really focused also now last week and today and for the next few weeks on the differences in the lives of those who are living the God life. And we talked about the core of the God life, meaning that what is really foundational is our understanding of and application of the Word of God. And that's especially the case today. I want to look at this text from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached from three vantage points that I believe are going to emphasize marital faithfulness and also the love of God. I begin reading at verse 27, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want to begin the message this morning by talking about verses 27 and 28. And I've titled it, as you can see in your notes, One Glance Versus Repeated Looks. Jesus emphasizes for his hearers the seventh commandment in the book of Exodus chapter 20. The seventh commandment out of the ten. You shall not commit adultery. But he also emphasizes the spirit of the law as much as the letter of the law, maybe more so. Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were saying, in effect, 
well, I've never committed adultery. I'm still married to the same woman. We've been married this length of time. But Jesus is saying, well, that may be, but have you lusted after other women? Have you looked longingly at another woman with a sinful desire to be intimate with her? That's what that word looks in this passage is all about. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, that is, who stares at, who covets, who looks longingly at. It goes back again to Exodus 20 and to the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment said, You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or any other thing that your neighbor owns. That word covet would be a good way to think of this word looks at. To look at with a desire to have what cannot be yours. I think it's important for us to understand in this first part of the message that one glance is not the same as repeated looks. We can't avoid the one glance in today's world. Advertisers are throwing sexual things at us all the time. It might be from TV programs, commercials, or movies, or billboards while we're driving in our car. You can't avoid the one glance. But the question is, do I look and look again and look again and look again? That's the issue. Pornography is in epidemic proportions today in our country. It's a serious, serious problem. It's affecting many of our young people, but not just young people. And it's not just a sin that men engage in. Focus on the family research did a survey among young people, not just Christian young people, but young people in general, in which they discovered that more than half of those taking the survey believe that not recycling your garbage is more of a moral crime than viewing pornography. Imagine that. That's where we've come to today. Jesus is teaching us that sexual sin is serious. In fact, the word pornography comes from the Greek word porneia. And it's translated often in the New Testament as sexual sin of any kind. Jesus teaches that his true followers, those who are living the God life, are totally committed to their marriage. And it's seen in the way they view their mate and the way they view others. They see others as people, not playthings. They see others as uh, their mate, for example, as someone who needs to have love expressed, not exploited. They see other people as beautiful creations of God, not merely bodies to connect with. The main focus of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is for married people. 
The word adultery is a specific sin related to married people. But it is possible for young people and unmarried people to look lustfully at others too. And that's why the second point of our message is important. I'm going to spend the bulk of our time this morning on the third part of the message. So these first two will move along quickly. But look at verses 29 and 30. He talks about stumbling with our look, our eye. He talks about stumbling into sin with our hand. And this picture that you'll see on the screen is a picture of a tripwire. And I think it's very important for us to understand the significance of that. That word stumble really focuses on that idea of a tripwire. The word is scandalon in the Greek. It's the word we get scandal from or scandalous. But the idea is that this person has been uh, taken off track. They've gone off the narrow way, the way that leads to life. They've gone off the narrow way and they've gone on to the broad way that leads to destruction. And they've tripped over this wire of sexual sin. By the way, Jesus is not demanding here in verses 29 and 30 that we literally pluck our eyeball out and throw it away. Or that we cut off our hand and throw it away. He's not talking about self-mutilation. We could translate it as, in our modern language, as cut it out. (laughs) Meaning, knock it off. Don't do that anymore. If you've been taken down that path and you've tripped over that wire and you've caused a scandal, don't do that anymore. That's what he's saying. The most bizarre interpretation for someone like me who's left-handed would be to say, well, he's talking here about the right hand, so I guess I could do without the right hand and I'd still be okay because I can write and so on with my left hand and eat. That's not the point. Because plucking out one eye or cutting off one hand wouldn't change the heart. I could still see with the other eye the things that I shouldn't be seeing. I could still, with the other hand, do things that I shouldn't be doing. That's Jesus' whole point. And just like our previous message about murder and uh, its predecessor, anger, Jesus is also not saying that anyone who looks longingly at another woman or another man or anyone who engages in sexual activity outside of marriage is going straight to hell. That's not what the passage is about. The point is, we have to make a deliberate, decisive, and even drastic step in the other direction. Back on the narrow way that leads to life. Saying no to lust and no to cheating on our marriage partner. And no to being careless with our eyes or our hands or any other body part when we're attracted to someone else. And that's true whether we're married or single. By the way, no one can honestly say 
Please understand this. No one can honestly say, I couldn't help it. That just is not true. And yet we have people saying those kinds of things today. I just couldn't help it. It just happened. It must have been meant to be. No. No. To any of those statements. Why do I say that so strongly? Because God's Word says it so strongly. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Here's what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted, notice, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. We're talking about serious stuff here. Sexual sin that causes the breakup, can cause the breakup of a marriage. Again, this stumbling, being sidetracked by our emotions, tripped up off the narrow path of God's righteousness, walking that wide trail that leads to destruction. And I can tell you there are many people who will testify, if they're honest about it, that that broad road that they thought was leading to the good life was instead leading them to destructive activities and thinking. The world's philosophy is do whatever feels good. That's not God's philosophy. That's not the philosophy of the Bible. So step back over that tripwire. Don't fall again. Step back over that tripwire. Don't go down that path again. Take whatever drastic steps are necessary to get out of the line of Satan's destructive power. The only way back is to take specific drastic steps to be back on the narrow road that leads to the God life as God intended it. Over the years, I've counseled with a number of young men who have struggled with pornography. And I've recommended as a means of conquering that, in part, to get rid of the Internet. That's where most of it occurs these days. Back when I was a kid, it was adult magazines. But now it's the Internet. So I've counseled them, get rid of the Internet. Get rid of your computer, or at least get, take the hard drive out. Get a different hard drive. Don't have that stuff on the screen. And some have heeded that advice, and they've gone on to, with God's help, conquer that pull toward pornography. Others blew it off as, uh, what does he know? And they continue to struggle. We're in a society today where the moral fabric is being destroyed and where too often people look at others as objects. We forget the fact that most of those pictures are airbrushed. Nobody looks that good, really. Honestly. It's all a ploy of Satan 
to get us to go down the wrong path and trip over the wire. These four verses that we've just looked at all lead up to Jesus' teaching about divorce and His insistence that marriage is designed to be one man and one woman for life. Again, verse 31, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is talking about something that they understood from their Jewish leaders and from the Old Testament. I've studied the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage according to the Bible many times over the years. Dating back to my days in Bible college when I wrote a thesis paper a position paper on divorce and remarriage and what the church should do about it. 50-page paper. More importantly, though, I've counseled many couples facing divorce or looking at remarrying after divorce. We need to understand now, as we come to verses 31 and 32, the context in which Jesus gives this teaching, this authoritative declaration. There were two schools of rabbinic thought back in Jesus' day. And they based their teaching on how they interpreted a key passage in the Old Testament written by Moses under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. That is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Four verses, the focus of which is you can't go back and remarry your first husband or your first wife. After you've been married that second time, you can't go back. That's the the main thrust of that teaching. But the rabbis focused instead on this expression because he has found some indecency in her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce. And so the debate for centuries was, what is that indecency? And so there were two schools of thought. One uh, well-known rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, who was very conservative, said that indecency has to do only with marital unfaithfulness. So if he finds out that his wife has been unfaithful to him, he can write her a certificate of divorce. But again, he can never go back later and remarry her after she's been married a second time. The other school of thought, the liberal school, was given by a rabbi named Hillel. And he said that the indecency meant any cause, anything she did that he didn't like, he could divorce her. And I'm talking anything. 
burning your toast, you could divorce her. But it also came down to, believe it or not, much like we would see today in our society, it came down to, I found somebody better looking, nicer, better cook, better body. I want her so I can divorce this one. That was the liberal view. Jesus clearly sides here with Shammai. One cause, one legitimate cause, as God sees it, for a divorce. And that's repeated and unrepentant unfaithfulness, adultery. The common approach in that day is what we're back to today, and that is divorce on demand. If you want a divorce, get a divorce. It's that simple. Jesus here is stressing God's intention. No divorce. Unless it's for the cause of repeated and unrepentant unfaithfulness. I believe after my study of this over the years that if a person is divorced for a biblical cause, repeated, unrepentant, unfaithfulness, that that person has the right to remarry. I believe that's biblical. There are two other times when a person can remarry, according to the Bible. One is if your mate dies, you can get married again. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, it's given to us in the context of the uh, debate between law and grace, but it says there, the married woman is bound to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. So she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So if your mate dies, you can remarry. Another time when you can remarry is if you and your wife were both non-Christians when you got married, but then one of you comes to know Jesus as Savior. And then over time, the one who remained a non-Christian, an unbeliever, decides, I've had it with this. I'm not going to put up with this Christian stuff. I don't want to be married to this person anymore. I don't want to have that Christian influence around me anymore. If that person walks away from the marriage and divorces the Christian, the Christian has the right to remarry biblically. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what Paul says beginning in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord... That if a man has, a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away or divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet... If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, meaning not under bondage to keep the marriage together or to stay single. God has called us to peace. 
And then the third reason, as we see here in Matthew chapter 5, is for repeated unfaithfulness. There's one other key passage that connects to this. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a long passage. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. But it essentially says exactly the same thing. Jesus had been teaching and large crowds were following Him and the Pharisees came to Him, the Bible says, testing Him. And their question was, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? In other words, Jesus, do you side with Rabbi Hillel? Do you take that liberal approach, any cause? And Jesus answered them by taking them back to Scripture. Back to God's intention. For this man, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they said to him, Well, then why did Moses command that we give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus' answer was, Perfect, because he's perfect. Moses didn't command it, he permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning it was not so. And then Jesus closes that passage by saying, So whoever divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now you're going to see a picture on the screen. It goes back a few years. I put this picture up for several reasons. One, to show you that I used to have hair (laughs) a long time ago. But also because I want our wedding picture from November 25th, 1972 to be a, a setting for the remarks I want to share with you now that come out of personal experience as a married man of over 40 years. My observations... Uh, as a pastor for more than 40 years, and some practical application to each one of us on this subject of divorce and remarriage. I want to give you 10 statements. These are not uh, Letterman's top 10 or anything like that. These are Bill's 10 statements. I could have come up with 25 probably, but for the sake of time and focus, I'll leave it at 10. I hope they will be helpful to all of us. The first statement is, I don't look like I used to. Um, I'm more handsome than I was then. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) My point is, that happens in marriage, doesn't it? We don't stay looking just like we did when we first got married. And if we're going to base our marriage on the fact that we are taken with somebody because of their physicalness, their beauty, their handsomeness, we are in store for a disappointment 10 or 20 years down the road. Because we don't look like we used to. But Gloria and I are still together. She doesn't look like she used to either. She looks better. I look worse. 
Marriage isn't initiated solely because of handsomeness or beauty. And we don't stay married solely for those reasons either. If we have a marriage that honors God. Humorist Sam Levinson said, Love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for years that it becomes a miracle. (laughs) And boy, is that true. We make a commitment to each other that even if we change in our appearance or we begin to have physical problems or we have to have heart surgery or our knees are bad or whatever it is, that we stay married. We've made that commitment. Secondly, marriage is worth the work. How many of you here today who are married would say marriage is work? I thought so. Marriage is work, but it's worth the work. We both need Jesus at the center of our relationship. It goes back to that first of the Beatitudes that we looked at several weeks ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we said that that means someone who recognizes, I need Jesus. And if our marriage is going to make it long term, we need Jesus at the center of our marriage. And it also means that we desperately need to be in God's Word, reading our Bibles every day, to fill our hearts and minds with His perspective on everything relating to marriage and family. If we blow that off, if we take the approach, well, I might take my Bible with me Sunday when the preacher's preaching, but the rest of the week it stays on the shelf, we are headed for trouble. The tripwire is going to be right there at our feet. And we can expect that at the first sign of trouble we're going to be lost as to how to handle it because we haven't been in God's Word to get His perspective. Thirdly, most arguments in marriage, and I know this from experience, are over stupid things that really don't matter in the long run. Marriage counselors will tell you that most couples have their most serious fights that lead to divorce over, ready? Finances, money. Money. It's the most common reason for marriages falling apart. And what does that matter in the long run? Is that more important than long-term love? Of course not. It can't be. Fourthly, speaking of arguments, most disagreements or fights are restored when we think more of our relationship than we do of our rights. When we think more of our relationship than we think of being right. In fact, having to be right all the time is just plain wrong anytime. No one is right all the time. Just God. My fifth statement is for single people. 
young people or those who were married and are not now. The decision to marry the person God wants you to marry is the second most important decision you will ever make in your life. The first being to trust Jesus as your personal Savior from sin. And may I add a B to that. 5A was the most important decision next to trusting Christ as Savior that you'll ever make. But the B side of it is virginity is still God's will. I'll say that one more time, especially for young people. Virginity is still God's will. The Apostle Paul says so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual sin. Very important. The sixth statement. What Jesus teaches here in Matthew 5 on divorce is not to be taken as the quick out of a marriage. What I mean by that is if my mate cheats on me, I am not to automatically say, well, hey, I'm filing tomorrow for divorce. That's it. That's not the approach that we ought to take. If it's a repeated violation, if there's unrepentance, that's a different story. But if it was a one-night stand and this person now is so sorry for what they've done and they've made it right with God and they want to make it right with you, work on the marriage. It's worth it. It doesn't need to be the quick out. Seventh, as sinful as adultery is, it can be forgiven by God just like any other sin. Amen? We have a forgiving God. A good example of that is in John chapter 8. We won't turn there. You can study the passage for yourself, but it's the story of Jesus being confronted by the Jewish leaders with a woman in hand, in tow, who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they said to Jesus, what do you think? Should, be, should she be stoned to death? You remember Jesus told them, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. And they all walked away. But then he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He did call adultery sin, and it is. But he also forgave her. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Number eight, as destructive to marriage and the family as divorce is, God can and will start with you right where you are as a divorced person. Life is not over, it's not the unforgivable sin. And you can be happy in the Lord. And in your current relationship, if you're seeking now to live the God life. Yes, it is true. Someone would bring this up. It says in Malachi 2.16, God speaking, I hate divorce. He does. 
But please notice what Malachi 2 verse 16 doesn't say. He doesn't say, I hate divorced people. That's huge. That's huge. He doesn't hate divorced people. He loves you. If you've been divorced, it's not the end of the world. God forgives and He loves you. Number nine, perhaps the major reason why God hates divorce is because marriage is a picture of His love for His covenant people. That was true of Him with Israel in the Old Testament. And it's true today of Him and His bride, the church. We're going to see that in our scripture reading in just a moment. Gloria and I do not have a perfect marriage. No one has a perfect marriage except Jesus and His bride, the church. That's a perfect marriage. And that's why I believe God hates divorce so much. And then number ten. I can confidently say to everyone today who's come to know Jesus as Savior and who's seeking to live the God life, that no matter what you may do that displeases a holy God, that goes against His revealed will, God will never use the D word with you. He will never say to you, I divorce you. It's not in his vocabulary. So, let me take one practical application from that. Don't use that word in your marriage either. Gloria and I made a commitment when we got married all those years ago to never use that word in the house, ever. Especially while our kids were all living at home. Don't ever use that word. Don't give them the idea that that's even a possibility for you to divorce. Check the homework side of your notes today and there's more about that. On a little lighter note, as I wrap up this message, there was a survey taken among little children and they were asked, is it better to be single or married? And one boy, Kenny, age seven, responded, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. (laughs) Oh, boy. Because of those uh, living the God life are committed to their marriage, we have a far different attitude than the world does. And our attitude is it really isn't any trouble at all to make a choice every day to love our mate. Just as God loves us. Just as God chose before the world began to love you and me. And we could sing an old country song like, I'm going to love you forever, forever and ever. Amen. But how much better if, instead of Randy Travis... We turn to God's Word. I'd like you... Can we put that up, Ken? 
a scripture passage. Please read this with me. I'm sorry. The one with the picture of Bill and Gloria. There we go. Let's read it together, can we? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless." Some of us who are a little further down the road have gotten a few wrinkles over the years. A few age spots on the backs of our hands and so on. But God loves His church so much that He's going to make her perfect in every way. We are His bride. And He loves us. He loves you today. We're going to close the service this morning by singing Forever My Love. And I trust it will be our testimony to the Lord today as we close our service. Would you stand and sing with me? testimony in this song. Let's sing it together. The nails in your hands, the nails in your feet, they tell me how much you love me. The thorns on your brow, they show me how you bore so much pain to love me. And when the heavens pass away, all your scars will still remain. And forever they will say just how much you love me. So I want to say forever my love. is yours forever my love forever my heart forever my life is yours sing it once more the nails in your hands the nails in your feet they tell me how much you love me the thorns on your brow They show me how you bore so much pain to love me. And when the heavens pass away, all your scars will still remain. And forever they will 
just how much you love me. So I want to say forever my love, forever my heart, forever my life is yours. Forever my love, forever my heart, forever my life is yours. Forever my love, forever my heart, forever my life is yours. Forever my love, forever my heart, forever my life is yours. Forever. Father, we're so thankful today that you love us like that. We don't deserve it. But that's how it is in marriage, too. We don't deserve consistent love, the choice to love. But that's what you want from us toward our mate. Lord, help us, instead of using the D word, to use the L word, I love you. We love you, Lord. But even more so, you love us, and we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.